We've been spending summer looking at preventative soul care. How do we care for the spiritual part of who we are? We, we, we know about primary health care. I need exercise. I need balance in my life. I need discipline. I need, you know, relationships. All of these things that, that, that are there. And so we said, well, what would that look like in our, in our spiritual life, in our relationships with God and with one another? How do we build into that? And so what you just saw is a series called Unleashing Hope, and this is going to be our Wednesday all-church study starting September 3rd, that, that it's an opportunity for fellowship, an opportunity to connect, but to really work out what, what we've been talking about is great, but how does it play out in my life? What are the anchors that are going to sustain me, and how do I make it so or make it more so in, in every aspect of my life? So I invite you... Um, September 3rd, Wednesday, starting at 7, and uh, it's just going to be an amazing time. We'll have you out of there by 9. Very doable, but in terms of just packing in connection, uh, grace, the truth of God, and it being worked out real time in in, uh, a situation um, where it's friends and it's safe to trust, encourage everyone to go there. Now, as I said, we've been uh, looking at all summer our spiritual uh, primary care, primary soul care series. And this lesson or this teaching today was supposed to really be the wrap-up. But I'm figuring you're either like me, mine like a steel sieve, so it doesn't matter how many times I remind you, now it's wash, rinse, repeat, or you're pretty good listeners and, and you get it and it's fairly obvious what we've been talking about. Nothing that we looked at this summer in terms of getting into the word and the input in our life and relationships and, 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 and discipline and in all of these things, the one another's, none of it's rocket science. It's pretty simple and I think we get it. I get it. Understanding's not the issue. But where I have trouble is the context of my life. And all God's people said, turn down for what? No. Um, Now, I I switched. The kids are supposed to be in here today, and I I switched the slide out from your bulletin. Uh, On your bulletin, it's just somebody in an oxygen bar at an airport, so don't worry about it. Um, Turn down for what? This is a phrase uh, my my kids use frequently, um, facetiously. And, and it's, it's a posture, it's an attitude. To turn up means literally you get to turn up the volume to get more rowdy. Uh, specifically, it means you're going to drink more, you're going to smoke more, you're going to party more. There's just no restraint. And so the question is, turn down for what? It's like, what, what possible reason would there be for me not to do these things, not to seek my ultimate fulfillment, not to make it all about me, not to do what I want, when I want, how I want, to whom I want. That's just the spirit of the age. That's the zeitgeist. You guys know that word? Sorry. Sometimes I use like really highfalutin sounding words that I don't understand to make me sound more photosynthesis. So I, <laughs> old joke. Um, Zeitgeist, spirit of the age. It's just the, 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 the Kool-Aid that we've all, all been partaking from. And, and this is the spirit of the age. It's the default setting for all of us as humans. 
That really it's all about us. We have difficulty seeing beyond ourselves. That's why the hope series is so important because when we realize there are reserves and resources and there is a God and he's intimate and he's personal and he's powerful beyond my brokenness, beyond my limitations, that changes everything. But the escape velocity of my own heart is is pretty strong. It's hard for me to escape that. So rather than do a wrap-up, I want to shift the context uh, for this entire understanding. I want to um, kind of recap this with the understanding that without addressing the context, we're going to default in one of two ways. We're going to take all of this teaching of, okay, this is how I can get more God. This is how I can really grow in the faith. This is how I can work through these difficulties. And, and with this context of it's all about me, Christians, we're going to go one of two ways. We're going to either see this as the Bible and, and all that's in it as a self-help kit. That, that it's kind of a box of tools to help me build my life the way I want to. And I'll, I'll do it on my own. Oops, I ran in a flat tire and, you know, pull out the Word of God and it'll help me in this one area. Now I get back on the road. And I'm st- sort of steering into the slide of my life. It's all about me and the Bible can help me get there better. Big mistake. Big mistake. A former godliness, a former religion denying its power. Um, or it's going to default into a rigid legalism. That, that judges yourself and judges everyone who doesn't measure up to you very harshly. And it's steering against the slide of our life. It shouldn't at all be about me and it's got to be about God. And I've got to just completely destroy all the evil in me and, and bad and, and beat myself down to nothing. And I disappear and then it's Jesus in my place. And this is a wrong way to go as well. One of these is working it out on our own. The other one's just letting go of the steering wheel and saying, I don't care, God, whatever you want to do. God didn't create us. God didn't redeem us. God doesn't delight over us and purpose himself through us for either. Because that's letting go of what we're supposed to do. So there's this healthy balance we have where we're engaging in something much beyond us. But we need to understand the context. Because if we don't, I don't know about you, but I know my own heart. And it's pretty sick. And it's going to be about me. Okay? And so turn down for what is simply this. These are the reasons why we want to look beyond ourselves. Why we want to appropriate all that God has for us. Very simply, our lives are so much greater than just ourselves. But we get it in our heads, I I just don't live there frequently. How many people saw the movie Gravity? Apollo 13? Anything to do with weightlessness in space? Actually, gravity is 90%, you know, at the space station, but it's in a free fall. 28,000 miles per hour, the International Space Station's falling, and so that's in orbit. Um, Well... For our purposes, it's a fixed point. And the people working on the space station, when the debris comes up, spoiler alert, I don't want to wreck the movie for you, but don't get too attached to George Clooney. <clears throat> anyway, um, the, uh, he should have been more attached. I don't know, I'm missing my point. If you're not tethered to a fixed point, you're going to continue to drift in your own direction, okay? All of us are going our own direction. And so hopefully this context is to tether us what is greater, what is beyond, where do we tie in? I could use so many places in Scripture because this is what God is about, to help us to see beyond the familiar to what we really need in Him, okay, what what becomes less invisible. And so I I chose to go with uh, Ephesians chapter 6 
This is a book about the church, to the church, for the church, uh, how we do this together. And it's dealing with all sorts of dynamics, the spiritual power we have in Christ, what God is doing cosmically. Chapter 5 talks about relationships. It talks about husband and wife and intimacy. And it says, you know what? We're talking some pretty crazy surrender and intimacy But as much as there's vulnerability and intimacy and trust and all these things are worked out in relationship, really talking about us and Christ, Christ in the church. Talks about parent-child relationships and how do you nurture and model faith and and, and what are the expectations. Talks about slave-master or employer-employee, these natural human relationships. A little bit into chapter 6, it switches abruptly to a warfare footing. You're talking about family relationships, and in the same way that war, as we've seen in the news, it just happens, it erupts, it bursts on the scene, it destroys the order that was there, so too we're reminded that it is not just about us, just about our fulfillment or completion, but it's about our engagement and purpose. It's about the context in which we really live, and we need to be aware of that. Who wouldn't want to devote their lives to comfort and good relationships and staying at home? But when we recognize the context has shifted and we're actually, this is not the way the world should be. This is not as God intended it. And we are his agents in bringing that together. That changes everything. That changes our outlook. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6. If you're familiar with this, this is called the armor of God. But don't get too attached to that title because I think it's a misnomer. And um, we're going to roll with this. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 starting with verse 10. If you have a Bible on your uh, phones. You ever get snapped off people and somebody in front of you is just like cruising away, you know, playing whatever? Um, they probably have a Bible on it, so, you know, a little grace. Um, but, but for old school folks, we also have Bibles in front, and we're going to have the text up here. Don't take my word for it. See if it's so. See if this is what God says, okay? We need to be strengthened in true strength. We have so many imposters, so many quick fixes. Anybody who has an internet connection and email, you get spam all the time, right? All these offers for strength. Strength in this area, strength in that area. This is going to do it for you. But what's real strength? What do we crave? What's actually going to help us to go the distance to fill out all that God has intended in our life? True strength. Ephesians Chapter 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, um, and just, just before we get started on here, it doesn't really, um, it's not finally. Better translation would be from now on. From now on, this is what you are to expect. From now on, this is the new norm. From now on, this is the way the rest of the life is going to go. So it's not, I've talked about all the important stuff and family and church and relationships. And uh, just in conclusion, finally, you know, you might want to consider this. It's, I've talked about all this and you're familiar with it. But from now on, you need to be alert. You need to be aware. This is how we engage life. This is where God wants to purpose and engage us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. doesn't say be strong. It doesn't last too long. It doesn't work for us. Our strength always fades, always fades, always fades. Read Isaiah 40. Even the best, even the fastest, even the most robust, we wear down. Be strong in the Lord and in his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the world powers of the domain of darkness, against the spiritual beings of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up God's full set of armor so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Okay, the strength of God is something that ties the book of Ephesians together. God introduces this as the foundation because we're so used to building our lives on our own strength, our abilities, our opportunities, how other people perceive us, how we manage our social status virtually or in real time, how we manage our careers, how we manage our families, how people connect to us. We, We have this sense of, I should, I could, I ought to. And it's our strength. And so from the get-go in a letter about let's do this the right way from the, from the beginning, God bases this on strength. The first time we see strength in the letter of Ephesians, and it's the same strength we just read about, is this. And notice the context. I pray that the, this is chapter 1 of Ephesians. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, basically saying, I hope you get it. I hope you get it. You know that you know that you know. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. How many people beat themselves up? How many people sin and it's the gunny sack? You just get all the old garbage trash. You go back out to the dumpster out behind the stuff. You're like, okay, God, let me just read through here all this garbage and stuff you've already sorted through in my life. And I'm feeling so horrible about myself. I'm just going to dump it all over me, right? And, 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 and we tend to do this. Um, God sees us as his inheritance. What does God get for taking on all the sin of the world? Every sin, everything we deserve, and eternity in hell for each one of us, taking that upon himself, personally suffering that infinitely, instantaneously, in a moment in time as infinite God. What does God get for his reward? He gets us. We are what he looks forward to for the glory set before him, his inheritance in the saints. He despised death even on a cross. Inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This power, the power that he's offering us in chapter 6, this power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Not just taking old life and putting it into old bones like Lazarus, Lazarus died again. But this is a completely different kind of life. The word that's used for Jesus is prototype. The first of what is to come. A new, eternal, glorious perfect way of being and existing and in fellowship with God. The same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion. What is the battle against? The authorities and the powers and the spiritual places. Christ is seated above them. We are seated with Christ. So that's the foundation of understanding the kind of strength, the kind of way that God is purposing himself in our life. Not only in this present age, but in the one to come. In all reality, what really matters. God placed all things under his, Christ's feet, and appointed him, Christ, to be head over everything for the church. Pretty cool he has our back, right? What which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Do you feel that? Do you believe that how God wants to most express himself in this world is through us? 
in our brokenness, in our process, in our transition, works in progress, that the strength would be seen as coming from God and not us doubling down on our efforts and trying to smell nicer and act better and conform. That really, it's in the uniqueness of our createdness, we see the true power and the true strength coming through. And it's the same resurrection power that is offered to us for daily living. Okay? In chapter 3, we have strengthened by his spirit in the inner being in terms of intimacy. Where would God dwell? In the heavens, in a supernova. Read Revelation and, and, and trip out, you know, kind of woo, cherubim and lightning and halos and all of this. Where Would God dwell there? Where does he choose to dwell? In us. He makes himself at home in us. And so to make the changes in us, in our attitudes, in our values where God feels comfortable, we need the strength of the spirit to do so. And then finally, we have God's strength applied to resisting and opposing evil. In a battle, you need to know your enemy. And so real briefly, this is how Paul describes the enemy to us. This is why the context is as it is. The enemy is organized. There's layers, there's, there's authority, there's chains of command, there, there's purposeness, there's specificity. This, this area of evil is being enacted here and this one over here. It's not just a, an angelic being raging against the machine, but it is purposefully arrayed against us. I'm one person. This is a master plan of, of, of an army and an attack against us. I cannot stand against it alone. Not only is the enemy organized, the enemy is powerful. You see, in the city of Ephesus, as the gospel was going forward, lives were being changed, people turned away from the worthless things. And at that time in Ephesus, there was a huge emphasis on magical scrolls. If you could say these secret names, you had power over people. People burned 50,000 Days wages worth of, of scrolls. And so there's this massive turning to the Lord. And everyone was getting on the bandwagon. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is great. People being set free. I can do this too. And so there's a story of this Jewish exorcist, uh, Siva. And he had seven sons. The seven sons of Siva selling seashells by the seashore with the rubber baby buggy bumpers. Five times fast. Um, it, it does, it's not an alliteration in Greek. But anyway, seven sons of Siva. And so they saw that God was changing people's lives. They thought it's something they could do in their own strength. It was a great idea. I want to be on God's side. So in their own ability, they went against somebody who was strongly, the, the word possessed is never used in the, in the Bible, demonized, oppressed by a demon. And they found out how quickly their own strength wasn't enough. Said this person overpowered them and beat them so severely, tore off all their clothes and they all ran away naked quite a scene. Well, this is, this is what the church is remembering when they're talking about power and their own power. Satan, yeah, he's defeated, but he's powerful much more so th- than me. Not only is our enemy organized and powerful, but he's also strategic. This is where we get the word method. NLT has a good translation, the strategies of the devil. It's not just opportunistic of, I'm going to throw this, I'm going to throw temptation on the wall and we'll see what sticks to Bill. The answer is everything. Um, but, but what he's going to do is he's, it's calculating, planned, and exploitative. It's unto an end goal, which is to pull us away from God always, in big steps and in little steps. Open persecution and obvious temptation, that's in the arsenal. But really, I think it's the seduction to compromise, to mediocrity, to one step less, 
to just step back a bit. Small choices, anesthetizing, beguiling, and twisting to where we find ourselves just slowly taken out, slowly unplugged, slowly comfortable, asleep. You know the difference between a rut and a grave, right? Six feet. Not only is our enemy organized and powerful and and strategic, but our enemy is evil. Our enemy is evil. Appears as an angel of light. 98% truth, 2% lie. And that's enough to twist us. But is evil. No convention, no quarter given, no moral restraint, no honor, no mercy. Fighting in the worst possible way, exploiting every vulnerability and weakness, and will not stop till we're pulled away from God. Satan can't terrorize us, convincing us that he has more power than he does. Remember, I used the example of a lion. Lion has four vocal cords, we have two. So a lion can actually project its voice four times greater. Uh, and so a lion, if it can't outrun something like a gazelle, it will roar and paralyze it, and then it can get it. So if Satan can't convince us he has more power by being a loud mouth and roaring, prowls about like a roaring lion, he'll convince us he doesn't exist. And in either way, this is what's arrayed against us. But we need to remember this. As I mentioned, our enemy is defeated. When you, when me, when I, Bill Osgood, when I was dead in my sins, when you were dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, just meant apart from God, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it, whoa, a little faster. He has taken away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Why we celebrate communion twice a month, why we keep coming back to Christ is this victory. He is our victory, he won it on the cross. Before I knew him, before I could do anything, while I was away, while I was a sinner, while I was his enemy, He saw me, fell in love with me, took everything that separated us and dealt with it before I even knew him. That is love. I'm not going to screw this up. He's taken it out of my hands and there's power and there's hope and there's grace so that I can truly fall as in love with him in relationship. How can a defeated enemy still constitute a threat? Hitler was ostensibly defeated at D-Day when the Allies landed, landed on the continent. But it was still another year. There were still two and a half million casualties to go. That he's still raging about, knowing his time is short, seeking to do as much damage as possible. And so we have to understand this context when we look at how do we grow, why do we grow, what is God purposing? If God's desire is to create a new order without regard to class, gender, or race then Satan is going to sow in our hearts subtly and overtly elitism, sexism, and racism. And he's doing a good job. If it's God's desire to bring about true freedom to be who he made us to be, then the devil seeks to keep us in bondage through abuse, hurt, coping, shame, fear, and hiding. If it's God's desire to bring salvation to the world, then the devil is not going to waste any opportunity to mobilize the very agent tasked with its completion. And that's the church. That's you and me. And so he will cause infighting. He will cause the focus to be something so far short of the glory of God. So far short of the lostness of people who so desperately need him. So far short of God's heart yearning to bring his love. And he'll have us fighting against one another and shut down. 
So we need to be equipped with real strength because our strength's going to go sideways. Our strength's not going to be enough. And God wants to bring this far beyond anything we could settle for. Second point, we need to be equipped with real weapons. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your, and having your feet with the cleats of the gospel of peace. In addition to all these, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I translated this as weapons. Wait a minute. Everybody knows this is the famous Ephesians 6 armor of God verse, right? How many people are familiar with this? Armor of God? Really? Um, the word's actually not armor. You see, armor is, we have this sense of armor's only to protect. And so if we approach this thinking that it's translating the armor of God, it's only to keep me safe and protect me from the world. I'm going to withdraw from the evil world, and I'm going to break fellowship with anybody who could influence me badly. And I'm going to put on armor, and I'm strapping down, and I'm zipping up, and I get the bubble wrap around me, and I get the Kevlar vest, and I get some more bubble wrap and some duct tape, and I get, you know, some lucite walls, and I'm going to hide out here like a turtle in a shell. I got the full armor of God on. Nothing can happen to me. I'm safe. Boy, God must really be proud of what an obedient Christian I am because I put on the full armor of God. The full armor, baby, yeah. Isn't this awesome? Isn't this God's purpose for us? That we put on the full armor of God and we're protected from anything. We're hermetically sealed from any interaction in this world. And then we'll be in heaven. You don't watch uh, the football game in body armor. You put on armor when you're engaging the enemy. It's purposeful. It's unto something. So the word's not armor. It's actually panoply. Panoply means your whole loadout, your whole equipment set. Everything that God has given you to do this stuff, take it up upon you. We translate it armor because we have this protective mentality, and armor feels awfully safe. Um, Football. You think the pads are to protect you or to hurt somebody else? Both. I play defense, and so the worst thing you could do is stick somebody with your face mask right under, right under the, right in the ribs here, um, or or use your pads. Or I mean, they're they're offensive weapons. They really, really are. Ask any running back. Um, and so we think, oh, it's just to protect the people. No, no, no. It's to employ it in every means possible to do what you're called to do. That's the armor. Again, the entire point's not just protection, but to be able to stand firm and to resist, to know that God has our back, to be able to be and remain where God has called us. And the second thing we need to learn is this is for all believers. This isn't an added extra once you've arrived or for an elite class of Christians or just on special occasions. It's a way of life and an engagement. And this is why I was saying if we just looked at primary soul care, how do I get into the word and relationships? How do I lay hold of God in prayer and fasting and all these things? If we don't have this context, it's going to divert to either it's all about me or it's all against me and against others. Legalism or libertarianism. And, and God wants us to be purposed and on a mission. And that's why we're going with this context. Okay, there is so much written about the armor of God, I can't do any better. So I'm just going to, just a few quick comments to try and set context, and, and we'll, we'll cut to the chase here. Okay, mentions all these different pieces. If you're, reading this, if you're reading scripture in the New Testament in your Bible and you see all caps, what does that mean? It means God's angry and he's yelling at you, right? 
The loins of righteousness, the loins of truth, and the breastplate of righteousness. All caps rage. No, no, it means it's an Old Testament quote. And so Paul's saying, hey, you guys recognize this stuff, and it had a place in the Old Testament. You're going to gather it all together, and we're going to rebrand it, okay? And you're going to see that it's actually not for them then, but for us now. Loins of truth or belt. This is really where the soldier hung, hung his sword, sword, so you don't have to carry it all the time. And it, and it kept the sword close. It kept the person effective, and he's saying loins of truth. You know, I often used to teach this is what's the area of our life where we're most often deceived? In our sexuality, right? So loins of truth is counterbalance. It's probably reading a little more into it than was intended. I think a better understanding of this is it's imminently practical, that the truth is imminently practical. It doesn't say loins of the truth. It doesn't have an article. It's truth, any truth, all truth. If it's true, you need it, get it. If you don't have it, Get it any, any way you can. And so anything that is true corresponds to God. It is right. And the more that we have attached to us, a utility belt, if you will, the more effective we're going to be. My, my dad used to teach on this being a career infantry officer. And uh, he, for the, um, the loins of truth, you'd say it is the exact equivalent from the Roman times to, to more modern times with your ammo belt. Uh, now it's, it's your, your tack vests and stuff, but uh, back in Vietnam, it was an ammo belt. And he said, during the loadout on boats before operations, everybody wanted ammo. People had a premium on ammo. They wanted more ammo than anything. People would go without food. They would take ammo. They'd take more ammo. They'd take ammo for their friends. They're taking mortars. They're taking rockets, grenades, everything. People could hardly walk because this is the last chance they had before going into battle, and they didn't know what they're going to need, but if they needed it and didn't have it, they're going to be in big trouble. And so they burdened themselves down with as much ammo, or in our case, as much truth. You see, if we see it as a peacetime mentality, then it's, eh, it's, a, it's a salad bar, I'll take a little of it, broccoli, eh, take some garbanzo beans, and we'll just kind of mix and match with what we need. But if we see this as an actual loadout for a purpose, we're going to want more truth, more truth, more truth. How do I deny? How do I get untruth out of my life? How do I focus and purpose that I can live the most real congruent life possible? That's what I believe the, uh, the loins of truth are, utility belt. Breastplate of righteousness. That means that you have to be righteous in your character and in your conduct so that nobody will be able to accuse you, right? No, absolutely wrong. Please don't believe that. That's a big lie right there, okay? It's not your righteousness. It's not the breastplate of your righteousness because you know what that is? That's a piece of tissue paper. Spear's going right through it. Don't kid yourself. It might be cardboard, but it's not much stronger than that. The thing of, if, if my salvation is based on my efforts, my righteousness, my performance, I'm doomed. There's only one reference point here. It's to God's righteousness. We put on God's righteousness that's been applied to us and we make it active. Hey, Satan, you, you, got, you got to fight the big guy before you get to me, okay? It's his righteousness. You accuse him, not me. And so please don't see this as your righteousness. That's called the hamster wheel. You're going to get tired. You're going to quit. It's God's righteousness, which he provided already, which is absolutely impervious. Footwell, footwear of the gospel of peace. And they translate it cleats because the words actually base or stand. We're firm. And what it means is when we're dialed in on where God has called us to go, what did Jesus say to his followers? I gave it away. Come follow me, right? And so we are purposed. So sharing the gospel, the good news, this is what God does in the world. We, we, we have a foundation. We have perspective. We have stability. And we're moving forward. 
But here's the strange thing. We have all this wartime stuff, shields and swords and helmets and breastplates and armor and all this. And it says the footwear of the gospel of war, right? It doesn't say gospel of war. It says gospel of peace. So right in the middle of this military analogy, right in the middle of this wartime footing, it's the gospel of peace. And we need to remember that. You see, so often we, get mil- we militarize the church in terms of prayer and spiritual warfare, but we can easily slip into fighting this in our own strength, and we start fighting against people. God is a God of peace, and sin must be dealt with necessarily. Ask Jesus. He dealt with it, and he dealt with it necessarily. Okay, so God takes responsibility. But war is the final enemy. Death is the final enemy. And, and this is what God came to do. To seek and to save the lost, to destroy the works of the evil one, which brings death and loss and destruction in our life. So we do not war according to this world. We war with peace. Not to be too Tolstoyan around here. We war with peace. It's an insurgency. And people are not the enemy. People are the prize. Every person who doesn't know God is captive by the evil one. Let me spell this out. ISIS is not the enemy. You hear me? ISIS is not the enemy. ISIS is a group of people who are enslaved to the evil one to do his bidding, to be his proxies. But they are the prize. They are on God's heart. It's his salvation. Why we were yet his enemies. Was I any more of an enemy than what they're doing? Perhaps in magnitude on this planet, not before God. People are the prize. They are people made in God's image like us, people in need of God's salvation like us, and they are in bondage just as everyone who doesn't respond to God. And so it's the gospel of peace to set free, to put the weapons down, to disarm the authorities. Talks about the shield of faith. It says, beside all of these things. And the shield of faith, it's just playing on this thing of so that you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. In the ancient world, uh, the Romans would have all their scutums there, these long, goofy shields, and they'd be marching in the, the battle like a turtle. And as long as the shields were up, there's no way that the enemies could attack them. So they, they got the brilliant idea of flaming swords, because somehow when fire's right in front of you, you tend to go, ah! And so what happens is they didn't, the, the arrows wouldn't hurt you. And they wouldn't set you on fire, but they would startle you and take your focus off of where you're going. And you'd panic to the immediate, and you'd drop your shield, and now you're vulnerable. And so it's saying the strategic temptations, it's a word that's used, the flaming darts, the things that just get us to look down, just get us to take our eyes off of Jesus, and we start to look at the storm, and we start to sink. And so it says our faith is active. Don't you think a shield is a passive thing? Like the turtle, I'm going to hide behind it. But he's saying you actively, your faith, what do you believe? What's transcendent? What is real? What's beyond? We can put it into practice. And this is where we see it worked out. And it talks about helmet of salvation. It's borrowed from Isaiah 59:17, where Yahweh himself wears this helmet. It's one of ultimate victory. And that's the same helmet that we wear, one of victory. Yes, the head, the most vulnerable part of the body, is protected, so that's salvation. We can take some blows, we can get bruised, but we're going to be safe. That's there. But I think the reason helmets used of, how many people, uh, when, when I mention a Roman helmet, can, can think of what I'm talking about with a big, the big brush up here? It's like, uh, hey, Caesar, uh, my toilet is, you know, needs some cleaning. Okay, I'll just, you know, that's kind of the rooster thing going on here. Well, you That's not just for laughs. That's actually their rank insignia and their unit designation. And so the helmet told everyone who you were, who you belong to, and who you're fighting for. 
And so our helmet of salvation tells the world who we are, who we belong to, who we're fighting for. And then it talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, our greatest weapon against the enemy. But word here is not just knowledge of God's word. What does the Bible say chapter and verse? But it's the knowledge of God himself. It's both and. Notice the the armor, the weapons, the panoply, the loadout kit. It's active. Hanging the sword, gathering the tunic, cleats dug in and moving forward, extinguishing flaming arrows, taking up, putting on, having done everything, preparing, standing firm. You see, armor, we think of it's just passive. We put this on and we're safe. Not at all. It's not the, 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 the chamber. But we put it on for a purpose to engage the world, to engage others, to engage the enemy where God has us. That we'd be able to stand firm. Finally, quickly, we need to be deliberately engaged in the real battle. So he talks about taking up the sword of the spirit and then immediately goes into this. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit, by the spirit, according to the spirit. It means the same thing. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And on my behalf, for a new shooter and some batteries. My behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. What was foremost on Paul's heart? That more people would be set free. That more people would come into the love of Christ. That, that God would have greater inheritance in the saints. For which I am an ambassador in chains. You see, Paul was writing this letter from prison because he dared to strap on the armor and to go into battle and to stand from and not back down and resist in the simple ways and in the big ways. We read, we read about some big ways in Acts, but I believe it was all the ways he interacted with people. That's what got him in trouble here. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Even in prison, even with freedom stripped away, that I'd still be effective. I'd still be on point with what God has. See, the command to pray is a description of using the sword of the Spirit. It talks about taking up the sword, which is the word of God, the truth. And it talks about praying at all time in the Spirit. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in prison, saying, if you get nothing else, understand this dynamic. I mentioned this before, super briefly before we close. Um, you guys know what a form letter is, right? Anyone? Business school? Uh, no. Let's say Christmas letter. You guys send out Christmas letters? That's where you have basically the same letter and you just personalize the front bit of it. Dear Aunt Margie, blah, 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 blah. dear Fred, blah, blah, blah. you know, you just you, you personalize it. Or, or we would say um, copy-paste. Paul copy-pasted here. I mean, come on. Papyrus is hard to come by. So he wrote to the Colossians and he wrote to the Ephesians and about 60% of the letters identical because he's saying these are the main things you need to get. These are the main things you're wrestling with in Asia Minor and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to say the same thing. This is the kicker though. In Colossians chapter 3, he, he gives this whole list of um, put on these things, put off these things. Three coordinate phrases talks about relationships, talks about husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters singing to one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And then in 3.16, it says this one thing. This is the core. This is how you do it. What we just built upon, moving from Ephesians chapter 5, it's the same thing. Put these things on, put these things off, three coordinate phrases, husbands, wives, uh, children, parents, slaves, masters, singing one another psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Identical, except in um, 518, it says this, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the same way that 
alcohol would slowly work on you, starts with your judgment, starts with other things. Um, it, it, it goes through you. Rather than that, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is affecting your judgment and your, and your, and your speech and, and everything, your desires and everything else. And so it talks about this intimate, personal, knowing God through the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. In the exact same place, the core of the Christian life, it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's Colossians 3.16. And so Paul is saying that all of these things, the one another's and the singing to one another and the relationships and the put off and the put on and all these things are identical. But where it ties together to the Colossian church, you could say, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. To the Ephesian church, you could say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, often we go to one or two extremes. You know, are we, are we Pentecostal? Are we Baptist? Are we mainland line? Are we, you know, w- w- and, and so it's a sense of, well, I'm more charismatic and it's a relation with the Spirit. No, 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 no. I'm more, you know, truth and doctrine and scripture and, and all of this. We forget the person who is Bible doctrine, that's the word of Christ richly dwelling with, within you. And if it goes beyond facts, it's relational. And the person who is filled with the Holy Spirit and taking God's truth upon him, God is writing his word in our hearts. And so rather than compartmentalize and say, this is the way to do it, and this works, and this, he's saying, however you do it, do it. However you get it, get it. However it's meaningful to you, how God wired you, the church you grew up in, how he's attached your relationships to you, what works for you, please, for the love of God, do it. And it's this enormous and wonderful encouragement, both and. You see, we can only know a person, but not facts about him. It's called an internet chat room, right? I mean... Chances are you're talking to a 13-year-old girl or an FBI agent. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you don't know whether these facts are true, but you, you know the person. Um, or you can know facts about somebody but not know them. It's called fandom, right? That's, that's why people are so upset. They meet, they meet their hero in person. That person's a jerk because they projected all this stuff. They knew facts about their life. They didn't know them. And so by the word of God about God, the spirit of God, who he is, together, this is the full, robust relationship. Everything we've been talking about in this series is unto this, that we would grow more, want more, be more established, that we would not settle for less, that we, seeing God, seeing him more fully, more gracious, more powerful, more inclined toward us, even as we see more ugliness, it's we can't go back. This is where we would want to be. That's why we're doing the Hope series. That's why we've been talking about it this summer. And this is why I really hope to set the context. The context is just not how can I be better, but how can I be more in point, on point where God is? Because if I'm where he is, I'm going to have the fullness of that experience, the fullness of the power available real time and, and uh, dialed into all that God has for us. September 3rd, encourage you. We have signups, Hope series good practical follow-up. How do we work this in our life? How do we hold on to God in the midst of everything else where he's more compelling, more worthy, more gracious, and more loving than we've ever known him? Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for your mercy and for your grace. I thank you that you know our frame that we're but dust. We fall down over and over again, and you are there to pick us up one more time. You are there to dust us off. You are there to speak your words of truth and affirmation and freedom and healing. That in knowing you and becoming more whole, we can make others known naturally, Lord. 
in setting the captives free. We thank you for your purpose. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the people you put around us with whom we get to soldier together and to work this out. And we recognize all of this is necessary for us, for where you want to bring us, and for your glory and delight in Christ's name.